Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Looking for a way to build daily prayer discipline? Seen the rise in mindfulness meditation? But not sure if it is possible to meditate in a way that's consistent with your Catholic faith? Just looking for a way to breathe new life into your existing prayer routine? No matter what you're looking for, Hollow is here to help. Hollow is a Catholic prayer and meditation app that helps users deepen their relationship with God through audio-guided contemplative prayer sessions. From meditations on the daily gospel to the rosary to daily examines, Hollow has something for everyone. Hollow is the number one Catholic app in the U.S. It is free to download and has permanently free content, but you can also check out all of the premium sessions for 30 days, risk-free, by signing up at www.hollow.app slash breadbox. Welcome to the Champions Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rubin and Coach Phil. The podcast where we share stories of faith being activated through sports. Welcome to the Champions Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rubin, and we are so thankful to have you joining us today for our latest episode of the Champions Podcast. We will be joined by Major League umpire Ted Barrett, one of the most respected umpires in all of Major League Baseball. Um, Guys, this is an interview that we conducted several months ago, so a lot of the things that you hear him talk about, he talks about in present time, um, and it was recorded shortly after the World Series. This is a fantastic interview in which we truly hear how God has uh, worked in Ted's life, how he really captured his heart at an early age, and just kind of his journey of bringing his faith and intertwining his faith and his career and how God has used Ted's faith uh, to impact other umpires across minor league and major league baseball. Ted has an incredible resume. He has... Um, he has been the crew chief of several or the home plate umpire for several perfect games. He's been on the crew for several all-star games. He's been on for the longest World Series game in the history of baseball. And so it's just a great interview. Ted really takes us behind the scenes of what it's like to be a major league umpire. For those of you who have never heard the Champions podcast before, it's our goal and our vision to interview current and former athletes and coaches and have them share their faith journey, have them share their their testimonies. And so at the end of this, guys, if, if you like it, we just encourage you, share, rate, and review it across all platform, all podcast platforms. Just share, rate, and review it. This way it helps uh, get out in front of people. I don't understand the Apple podcast algorithm as to how certain podcasts show up, but I know rates and reviews help. And so this isn't about making the Champions podcast name famous. This is just about making Jesus's name famous. And so we believe in the power of testimony. And so we want to get testimonies out in front of people so that they can hear what God has done in people's lives and know that, hey, that same God can do the same thing in my life. And so let's not wait any further. Here's our interview with Ted Barrett. Okay, and welcome to the podcast, Ted Barrett. We are so pleased, honored, and humbled to have you join us. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing great, and I'm excited to be on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I trust. I promise you the, the pleasure is all ours, and we are going to get into a lot of incredible things and just, uh, you know, there's so many questions I have for you in terms of being an umpire and your faith journey, but before any of that happens, are you okay if I open us up in prayer? I would love that. Awesome. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord God, and we are just so thankful for this day. Mm-hmm. We're so thankful for this opportunity to talk to Ted, to hear uh, what you have done in his life, Lord God. And we are praying expectantly that things that Ted shares, his journey, his relationship with you, Lord God, that you will prepare the hearts of the people listening and that bits and pieces of his story will resonate with you. But Lord, ultimately, the greatest thing that we pray is that Ted's love for you, his life surrender for you, uh, will overflow into people's hearts and they will hear the hope that Ted is filled with and say, I want what he has. I want what he has. And so, God, we pray that you will do what only you can do. And uh, we're we're praying that expectantly, Lord. Uh, And we just pray all these things in your great and mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Absolutely. So, I guess my first question is, was faith always in the forefront of your life? Uh, yeah, thank you for asking that. You know, like everybody else, I've mm-hmm. kind of got the up and down journey as opposed to a straight line. But when I was eight years old, uh, I went to church for the first time. My uh, uncle was the uh, a small church outside of Buffalo, New York. We, we, I grew up in North Tonawanda. And um, my dad's brother, he invited our family to church. Uh, we had never been, and so um, my uncle was the uh, the music director. He was the uh, bus driver. He was the uh, Sunday school teacher. He wore a lot of hats, and uh, he laid out the gospel at, at the Sunday message in, uh, for my age group, and uh, I responded right away. I knew that um, I didn't know the theology of it. I knew I was separated from God, and I, ne- I knew I needed to accept Christ as my Savior, and I did right there. Um, from there... I continued to grow as I got locked into church, and we went every Sunday, and, and, and I was uh, learning and growing. I was a little evangelist at 10, 11, 12 years old. <laughs> uh, when, I was, <laughs> when I was 14, you know, things happened in the church. There was a turnover. Uh, my dad at this time, uh, all our, my whole family had come to faith. My dad was in leadership. Um, uh, there was a, as a change was made, uh, we kind of fell away from that church, and we never really got into another one when I was uh, after 10th grade in high school and I was playing football, basketball, baseball, I was boxing, any sport I could play. Uh, my parents encouraged that me and my brothers. Um, we, I just got done with JV football, basketball, and baseball. My dad said, we're moving to California. And uh, I went kicking and screaming. I was so mad. <laughs> we got to California. I said, Hey, this is pretty cool. Um, it was not a bad place to be. Uh, and we said, hey, maybe we'll find a church out here. We never did. I didn't have any friends that went to church. I didn't have any friends. Uh, we didn't talk about church. We didn't talk about any of that. I would still say I was a Christian, but in reality, I wasn't growing. I wasn't learning. I wasn't mm-hmm. reading the Bible. I wasn't being discipled. I wasn't going to church. And um, so I just was stagnant in my growth. When I got to college, I was playing football there at Cal State Hayward, which is a little Division two school. It's Cal State East Bay now. They no longer have football. But there was a chapel service before the game, and I thought, hey, I'm a Christian. I should go. 
Um, and the, there was a gentleman from Campus Crusade for Christ who uh, led chapel for us. I think I went and I had a good game, so it kind of became a good luck charm. Mm. Uh, no real hunger for, for anything spiritual there, and it was just something I thought I should do. And I went. Um, the cha- the uh, gentleman that was our chaplain, he, uh, he invited me to lunch, and um, it was a free meal, so I said, I'll go. <laughs> Uh, but we began to meet weekly, and he began to uh, we, he began to give me some uh, scripture to memorize. We began to dive in and study, and it just reignited and rekindled this thing I had from when I was younger. And um, it was at that point that I said, "I want to I want to uh, learn all I can, and I want to study all I can." And um, um, from that point on. I'm so thankful to that man that he took the time to invite me to lunch that day because ever since that day, I, it's been a growing journey and a learning journey. So, yeah, I believe uh, that my faith was always there. I just think it became stagnant as I wasn't learning. And then once uh, I met with Eric, it began to take off from there. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. And so obviously we all know that, you know, it's one thing knowing about God. It's one thing learning the Bible and things like that. Inevitably, in every believer's life, I feel like there is that moment where um, your faith is tested. You know, it, 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 it's some sort of adversity or, or something happens in our life where now it's not just head knowledge. Now it comes down to putting that faith into action and truly trusting God. And so can you look back and can you see that moment for you where it wasn't just knowing more about God, but it was like, my faith became real here. Yeah, there there became a time in my life where I came to a crossroads. As I was coming through the minor leagues, I would continue to study, but I would kind of be quiet about it. And if you wanted to talk to me one-on-one, I would talk to you about it, and I'd share with you my faith. But I wasn't out there, and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't comfortable speaking to large groups about it and things like that. When I started to get games in the big leagues, as a triple-A umpire, we go up and work vacations and injuries. And, and um, as I was going around to different crews, I, I wanted to fit in. I really looked up to big league umpires. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to, you know, umpire like them. I wanted to dress like they did. I wanted to eat what they ate and, and all those things. And so I was quiet about my faith. I was afraid of being rejected for, for that. Um, and there came a point where, God just continued to draw me. I felt like he was drawing me toward ministry. And so I made this deal with God, which I laugh about now. Uh, but I said, you know, if I make it to the big leagues, that'll be my job and, and, and we'll be good. That's where you want me. And if I don't, then I'll go into ministry because I just felt this call that he, he, he wouldn't leave me alone. Um, and it came to a point where uh, God broke me down and showed me that, yes, I want you as an umpire. And yes, I want you in ministry. And so it, it came to that point where I had to get down on my knees in my hotel room and uh, just surrender to him because I knew I would never be fulfilled without it. I knew um, he, it was something that I would never find happiness or peace until I surrendered to his will. And it was that point in time I can remember uh, distinctly that I just surrendered to him and I said, God, this, this career and this life is yours mm. and whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And, um, that's what that's what we continue to do. We started a ministry called Calling for Christ, and I'll tell you this story just for, to encourage guys that are, are maybe afraid, like I was, to share their faith, or 
if you're afraid what other people will think. I had some testimony cards made up, just cool little baseball cards, giving my testimony on the back. And I handed them out at the league at, at our union meeting. And uh, I told, I came home and told my wife, I said, I think I just committed career suicide because nobody wants to work with the Jesus guy. Um, so I got on my crew and it was about a month later, uh, our supervisor came into town and he said, Hey, by the way, I just want you to know you were the most requested guy on the staff um, to be on the crew. So the wow. crew chief puts in selections. Uh, yeah. And uh, he said, you were the most requested guy. So that gave me confirmation that, um, you know, if, if you if you're walking the walk and talking the talk and, and you're doing what you say and people see a genuine faith in you, um, not some phony thing, I think they're attracted to that and they want to be around that. Even people that think they want nothing to do with anything religious or anything to do with God, when they see a, the, the genuine article, which, you know, is only the Holy Spirit coming through me. It's not uh, it's not me. But when they see that. That's something they desire and they want to be around. So I just want to encourage people that were afraid like I was, um, you know, get, put it out there. Take a stand. Take a chance and watch what God does with it. I think that's absolutely incredible because essentially it was the fruit that your life was producing that was attractive to them. And they're like, you know, they couldn't articulate it you know, or they may not have articulated it this way. But essentially they're saying, I want what he has. Like he has something that is attractive to me. And man, <laughs> as believers, isn't that what we desire? Our, uh, just our, the reaction everywhere we go. You know what I mean? Like we want people to say, man, I want what he has. Not I want to be him. I want to know who he knows. <laughs> and that's God. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. And I'll take it a step further. You know, when we walk out on the major league field, there's four of us or six in the playoffs. It's us against the world. Right. So half of the team's going to be angry. One side's going to be angry no matter what you call. The fans are going to be angry. No, uh, they're not worried that whether you're right or wrong. They're just mad because they're winning against your team. You are four guys in a foxhole fighting together. And so the biggest compliment we can have as umpires is, I want to work with that guy. Mm. Or, I would walk on the field with that guy. Because we don't want to walk out on the field with someone that's, that's not strong, uh, that's not strong in their convictions. That's not good. Uh, you know, we don't want to be bailing some guy out all the time. I want to work with people that are good umpires, that will stand up for their convictions, that will handle their business, um, that are good crewmates. And so, um, you know, a lot of people will say, uh, and, and, and I think you can carry that over to team sports where, um, you know, a lot of people think the Christian player uh, maybe is, you know, soft, or, or won't play hard, or, you know, all those things are just uh, fallacies that are not true. I believe that the, the true follower of Jesus is the warrior. He's the guy that you want in the foxhole with you. He's the guy that you want in the huddle with you. He's the guy on fourth and one uh, that you want blocking for you. You know, he's the guy you want at the free throw line. He's the guy you want with the bases loaded coming up the bat because he's going to be focused and he's going to do his best to get the job done because he wants to glorify God. And so, it's it's the opposite, I think, what the world thinks. Yes. Uh, the world thinks we don't want the soft Christian on our team. Believe me, you want that guy, you want that follower of Jesus on your team because they're following a warrior, and if you, they have the warrior mentality. Absolutely. 
Oh, I love it. I love it. So I have a lot of questions, and I do want to get back kind of to just even the origin of you becoming an umpire. But but first, while we're here, I just want to – you know, you, you had told your wife after you kind of came out with that card with your testimony that you felt like you committed career suicide. What have you seen, aside from other umpires working, one, you know, requesting to work with you, what have you seen as a result of kind of you being a pioneer and saying, here's who I am, here's what I believe, and I'm going to live out my faith here? Have you seen more umpires being like, man, if he can do it, I can do it? Yeah, and that's been really encouraging, especially having influence over younger guys, and not just younger guys, but other guys that, uh, of faith that are in the game, um, starting to use the platform that God's given them. Uh, we now pray on the field at times. Wow. When I first came, there was no prayer at all. <laughs> then slowly it became there was prayer in the locker room before the game. Now if you come to a game where my crew is working, we take that time at home plate after the lineups are exchanged, before we go to our positions, we huddle up, lock arms, and pray. And uh, in 2018, I had the honor of being the crew chief for the All-Star game. For the first time, six umpires before an All-Star game prayed on the field. I got the, I got the honor of being the crew chief for the World Series. We locked arms and prayed. And it's not even just when I'm the crew chief, but other times um, you know, the other crew chiefs in, in league championship series in the, in the 2014 World Series, other times we're praying. Uh, we do a retreat every year where, um, you know, the first year we sent out a bunch of emails and said, uh, we're doing an, an umpire retreat. We didn't know anybody would show up. Twelve guys showed up. I was disappointed. I was the only big league guy, but there were some low-level minor league guys. God was building those men up. Now they're big league umpires. Wow. It's pretty cool to see what God's done with them. And last year we had 60 umpires at our retreat. There's major league and minor league guys, active major league and minor league guys. And you're talking about a pool of, 76 major league guys and about 225 minor league guys. So you're talking about a pool of 300. You've got 60 showing up. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's just really humbling to see we've, we're gathering around the cross and we're spending a weekend uh, of just pouring into Jesus and blocking out all distractions. We do a prayer call every week, um, one for the big, big league guys and then one for the uh, minor league guys on another day. We get consistently getting uh, good participation. Guys that uh, don't even aren't part of our Bible studies or our discipleship programs, but they'll get on and ask for prayer. Right? People need prayer when when people get sick and, and, and loved ones get sick. They'll jump on the phone, and everybody's welcome. So it's and, and, um, we just lost two umpires, and um, I had the honor of speaking at both of their funeral services, and and. Um, uh, it was really, really cool to be able to um, minister to their families, but also to all the guys mm. that are there that were hurting uh, for our fallen brothers. And um, I've had the pleasure of doing some wedding ceremonies for some of the guys and, and bringing God into their marriage and um, doing some premarital counseling and, and things like that. So just watching uh, God uh, permeate the culture of umpiring, and, and I think it's happening in the whole sport of professional baseball. It's kind of cool to watch what God's doing with the players, with the general managers, with, um, you know, our, the clubhouse attendants, the, the people who sell the popcorn and take the tickets. It's, you know, God is there when you walk in the ballpark. And, and that wasn't that way uh, 30 years ago when I first mm. came to the big league. So it's, it's really encouraging. That's incredible. And uh, we, we're very sorry for the, the loss of, 
the umpires, you know, your brothers and, um, you know, just obviously for their families and stuff like that. But, um, you know, when I hear you say that, and this is something that God's just been showing me a lot lately is, you know, and, and obviously we know all the glory, all everything goes to God, but you are, you are a well digger. You know what I mean? You dug the well. Your yes to dig the well. Now, all of the praying and everything, everyone's drinking from the well that you dug. You know, and you look, and, and this isn't to boast about you. This is just, uh, and I hope you don't take that the wrong way, but we, we just know that no. it's all through God. You know what I mean? But long after you're done umpiring, you know, generations from now, when umpires are still still praying, it, it's a result of the well that you dug, and again, it's not to boast about you. It's just to show our listeners this is what God can do when we say yes to him. I'm sure the ministry and I'm sure the things that are happening, the prayer calls and stuff like that, probably back when you shared your, your testimony card, you never even envisioned it expanding to what it's expanded to, but God's taken your yes, and he had far greater plans than we ever had. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm the biggest skeptic when it comes to things like that. It was someone else's idea to start the prayer call, and I thought, all right, we'll try it, but no one's going to get on it, and maybe it'll last a little bit. There's a retreat. We'll try it. Probably no one's going to show. And we'll, But, um, you know, God just continues to blow me away with that. And I, and, and I want to encourage people, too, with – you know, they might be listening, saying, hey, OK, Ted did that. That's great. Um, I want you to know that I was the least qualified person to do this. Mm. And, um, you know, there's a saying it's become cliche in ministry, but God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the call. And, and that is so true, because I know in my case there was I was not uh, I was the last person you would pick to um, start a ministry for umpires. Mm. And I'm just telling you that if you think like you can't do it, you're right. You can't. And I can't (laughs) either, but the Holy spirit provides. And and, and I'm telling you, when you say yes and you commit to it and you start putting in the work and the time and the Holy spirit takes over and does it. Um, The the first event we did, uh, I was with a pastor in Oklahoma and um, we, uh, we got a speaker. I was going to speak, uh, you know, which I was scared to death. Um, we got T-shirts printed up. We had concessions, things we were going to sell and raise money. Nobody showed. Oh, <laughs> and uh, I just sat back and I said, well, it wasn't no. There, you know, there were some kids that showed up. It turns out that the high school had a, ended up making the playoffs. So, of course, the football game we were competing with. And um, it, it was just a flop. Let's put it that way. But the world would say it was a flop. Um, and, uh, the pastor I was with said, you know, this, the results are not up to you. The, the results, let God handle that. You just be obedient do it. So, so you know, take joy that you did what God told you to. Yeah. And, uh, I'm sure those people that were there, the, the word of God never goes back void. Amen. Um, but we could have got discouraged and just chucked in the towel, but we got focused on mm-hmm. who are we trying to reach here? We're trying to reach our coworkers, professional umpires. We tightened it up. And, um, you know, we just followed God's leading on that. So, again, you know, you get me preaching. Sorry, I'm taking up all your time. Are you, want, this is incredible. This is awesome. Okay. I want people to hear 
you think you can't do it, and you're right, you can't, but the Holy Spirit can. So if God's leading you somewhere, um, just put in the time, put in the effort, say yes, surrender, let him lead, and watch what he does. And, uh, you know, it might flop, it might fall right on his face. That's, that's up to God. It might flourish. Um, you could have thousands of people show up. That's up to God. It's not on you. So just be obedient and go. And one day we'll stand before him, and uh, hopefully he says, hey, well done, mm. well done, way to go. Amen. And uh, that's all we can ask for. Absolutely. That's awesome. And, and please never apologize because that that's the exact stuff that, that we want to share because we, we want people to hear truth, you know? And so many times I think people see God doing stuff in other people and they disqualify themselves as, well, I don't possess this. I don't possess that. Well, he can do this because of X, Y, and Z. She can do this because of X, Y, and Z. And we forget that it's not them doing it. Like Just like you said, it's God doing it, and it's the Holy Spirit doing it. And so I think our listeners hearing you say that, man, even if it impacts one person, praise God, you know? Um, yeah. So I did definitely want to ask you just when was it that you decided you wanted to be a major league umpire? You know, it's funny. It, uh, Jim Evans, who was a, one of my mentors teaching uh, umpiring school, you know, he said that no father ever uh, walked into mm-hmm. a delivery room, lit up a cigar, and said, that's my boy. Someday he's going to be a major league umpire. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, I believe umpires are born, uh, not made. But, you know, umpire is one of those things when, when you try it, and I know there's some listeners out there that maybe they got thrown into doing their kids game or a teenager that got thrown into doing a little little league game. When you when you umpire, you either hate it or you love it. And I loved it, um, but I never thought I'd do it for a living. You know, when I was playing football at uh, Cal State Hayward, um, you know, I had to get a job. My <laughs> I needed gas money. My girlfriend, who's my wife now, she lived uh, you know a little distance away, and my dad said, "I'm not paying for your gas." Uh, so um, my friends were you know, working at fast food restaurants or doing other things. And I started umpiring uh, three or four games a week. And uh, it was all the money that I, it was good money. And I thought, wow, this is cool. I'm getting paid for being out in this nice weather and watching baseball. Um, and at that point, uh, I had uh, some guys that were minor league umpires encouraged me, said, hey, we think you have what it takes. You should go to umpire school and give it a try. And um I did. And from there it was, I never really thought I'm going to make it to the big leagues. I just thought I'm going to see how far this goes. And, uh, it was about my, when I got to the double a level, um, I started to realize, Hey, I think I can do this for a living. I think I'm going to have a future in this. And, um, you know, that's, it took off from there. It was a couple years later when I got, invited to do some major league spring training games. And then I got called up to the big leagues and then um, eventually got my job. So it wasn't something that where I just sat down and said, you know, I'm going to be a major league umpire. It was more, I'm going to give this a shot and see where it goes. And, um, you know, then, and then God took me on this ride and, and here we are, uh, you know, as I get toward the end of my career uh, and I can't wait to see what God has next. That's awesome. And you had mentioned you either, you know, everybody tries it and you either love it or you hate it. 
I remember I was, I think, 24, 25 years old, and I got roped into ref, uh, being a ref for, like, f- f- uh, youth football. You know, and it was the age group where they don't even keep score. We were going to do three games, and like you said, the money was good. After a game and a half, I had never been yelled at and cussed at more in my life <laughs> than that. And my buddy and I, who were doing it together, at halftime, I said, let's just leave and forget about the money. Like, I'm ready to cry, you know? Like, I've never been degraded like this. We ended up sticking it out, but we vowed we will never do it again, nor will we ever argue with another umpire or ref the rest of our lives because I don't want their job. And so my next question for you is, did you always have a personality where what people said didn't bother you? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, actually, I think I was kind of a sensitive kid when I, uh, you know, I like I like to be liked like everybody else, and and I like the affirmation. Even as I played sports, I loved it when my coach praised me. I loved it when my parents praised me. Uh, hated it when they criticized me. I wasn't, uh, you know, I, probably more than than other kids. When when a coach was displeased with me, I was not happy. So I, you know, if you knew me as a young guy you probably wouldn't think that I had the personality to be an umpire. Uh, but it's just something you kind of develop this thick skin. And that's another thing where God has helped me uh, tremendously because uh, we say it's CF- CFC is the ministry, by the way, stands for calling for Christ. And we had a, uh, we have a saying that number one, our, our the way we end every prayer call and we wear some wristbands and say, Jesus loves umpires, mm. uh, which we joke, we joke because nobody else does. <laughs> and I'm, Sometimes our wives, sometimes our moms. But, um, the sometimes. other thing we, we say is uh, we work for an audience of one. Mm, so we know we're not going to please people. We know we're going to make people angry. And, uh, you know, some of the my kids playing high school sports, um, I've noticed this. Some of the nicest, um, godliest people that you see, friends from church, and uh, they, when it comes to their kids, playing sports they lose their mind yeah. <laughs> uh, i don't know what happens something <laughs> takes over a demon possession yeah. or something where they just start screaming at oh. officials and, and and coaches and uh you know why is my kid not playing well your kid's not very good <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but they lose all rationale they can they'll be completely uh, objective and rational toward toward other children but with theirs they just uh but anyway uh it's amazing to me as i watch these games and there is on a serious note there is a real problem in this country there is a shortage of officials because uh, most officials are like you we try to go out and recruit young guys to to uh do games and they just say forget this they're like you let's leave i don't care about yeah. the money i'm out of here and uh we're gonna run out of people to to officiate because the money's just not worth it. But um, to answer your question, yeah, we I work for an audience of one, and if uh, if God's pleased at the end of the game with with uh, how I did, then and He's glorified, uh, then I'm satisfied. So uh, you know, we we never walk off the field, and I, I know I don't when I work the plate. I never walk off the field and say, "Hey, I, I was perfect today." I know there was always even my best of days. There's always a couple pitches I want back. And, um, you know, I've worked a couple perfect games. I've never been perfect myself. And that's just a parallel with following Jesus. It's like you're never going to go through a day and say, you know what? I was 
I was awesome today. Uh, you know, I didn't do anything to displease God. I was, because there's always something. With me, it's usually five minutes into it when I can't find my keys. Um, <laughs> you know, I've done something to displease God. But, um, you know, but there's grace and there's mercy. And there's, uh, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of it. And every day's new. There's always new beginnings with God. And there's always do-overs. And uh, unfortunately, it's not the way in baseball uh, because, you know, Don Denginger missed a play in the 1985 World Series that they're still talking about. Wow. Uh, but thank God, thank God, uh, you know, with Jesus, it's as far as the East is from the West. He forgets all our sins and transgressions, but baseball fans aren't as kind as Jesus. So, <laughs> Amen. That's why I follow him. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, you know, let's go kind of to that minor league journey and, you know, I, I, we all we hear about minor league players and just how it's long bus rides. It's it just the minor league life is difficult. Is that the same for a minor league umpire? Yeah, it's even worse uh, in this sense. You know, in rookie ball and A ball and double A, uh, you're driving. We used to drive our own cars, which is a miracle with, with the money that we made. Wow. That, uh, those jalopies made it from point A to point B. But now at least they get rental cars. Um, but they're extremely long drives. You know, if you're, especially on the West coast, if you're in the California league, you know, you're going from Modesto to, uh, you know, to Visalia and then the next day you're going to Lancaster and then back up to Stockton. I mean, you're running up and down the, the roads there. And, um, I was in the Texas league and we went from Jackson, Mississippi to El Paso, Texas. That was a 16 hour drive. Wow. Uh, you know, you drive. You drive that, and you get out of the car and go umpire game. It doesn't matter if you're tired. The wagers are really, really low. Um, and it's two-man. It's just you and another guy in, in A-ball. When you get to double-A, you go to three guys, and then, of course, triple-A, you'll work three or four, and then you start to fly. Uh, but it is a grind, and you're looking at – think about this. If you're a great baseball player and you sign out of high school – you might find yourself in the big leagues in a year, two, three years. Yeah. You might be an A ball, have a good year. The next year they bring you up to triple A. That's not the case with umpires. You have to hit every level and there's several levels of A ball. So my son right now is a double A umpire, but he went from the Arizona league to the Northwest league, to the Cal, to the Midwest league, to the California league, to the Texas league. And you have to spend at least a year at each level. Wow. Um, so, you know, you're five years before you get to double A. Now you're two or three more before you get to triple A. Then you're two or three before you even get looked at by the big league. So it's a 10 to 12 year process before you even get a big league game. Now you're 13, 14, 15 years before you even get hired. And um, so with no, uh, only getting paid during the season, no pension, uh, no fallback plan. Um, and so it's a, uh, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. And the percentage of you making it to the major leagues from the time you go to umpire school, this is a statistical fact. This is going to sound made up, but if you take into account everybody that goes to umpire school every year, you have a better chance of being the governor of your state than to be a major league umpire. Wow. So there's 76 of us. We stay until we die or retire, which sometimes there's an opening last year. There was one opening. Uh, with the death here, now we have another opening. And so it's very rare that an opening comes up. And um, so the, the the odds are you're not going to make it. Um, so you were, 
all the guys in the minor leagues are chasing after something, hoping to get it uh, against tremendous odds. So, uh, but at the same token, it's an adventure and, and it's, it's a great time. You know, I, I work with some great partners in the minor leagues. I was lucky in these long drives and uh, it was tough. Uh, my children were young. It was hard being away from home. Things are a lot better now with FaceTime and things like this where they can actually see their kids. I would leave home uh, for March for spring training and, and sometimes wouldn't see them again until September unless they were uh, lucky enough to make wow. a trip in to visit me. Now, of course, in the major leagues, we get more more time off. We get, uh, you know, we have some discretionary income where we can fly our families into the city we're in and, and those type of things. That's but at great. the minor league level, it is, it is really, really hard. And so talk through, right, you you've you were blessed and uh, you get that call to move up to the majors. You know, we often see video or hear of that player getting the call and what that feeling is like. But what was it like as an umpire where, honestly, the odds are probably better to become a professional baseball player, you know? So what was it like to get that call? Walk us through that moment. Yeah, I remember like it was yesterday. It was uh, 1994, and uh, I was working in Tucson, Arizona, which was in AAA at the time, Pacific Coast League. And um, living in Arizona, I was living in the Phoenix area at that time, still am, uh, but we had moved down, my wife and I. And um, my youngest son wasn't even born yet, so it was uh, my my. Uh, I had three kids, um, and uh, so it was my son and daughter were with me in Tucson and my wife uh, because it was a place that they could drive down to any chance we got to spend time together during the season we did. And it was late May. And um, I got back from the hotel, my wife and kids had stayed at the hotel while I went and did the ball game. And she said, I had a message. Um, you know, this is before text. This is before cell phones. Um, and uh, so it's funny because we used to play jokes on each other as triple A umpires. For people that are, um, you know, I'm 54, so people my age remember, you got to the hotel, there'd be a red blinking light yeah. um, on the cell phone, and then you called the desk, front desk, and and uh, asked for the, you know, what your message was, and um, we would call each other different AAA umpires, and we would leave the name of the supervisor that calls people <laughs> to the big league just as a joke. So I might say, hey, Call call Marty Springstead. He was with the American League. Call Ed Vargo with the National League, and then I'd leave my number. Oh my um, word! So this message was call Marty Springstead, and I was like, okay, this is one of the other umpires playing a joke on me. And uh, my wife said um, she actually answered the phone. Said, hey, Marty Springstead wants you to call him. I'm like, yeah, sure. Who was it? Because it came out of nowhere for me. Uh, well, I called. And he said, I need you to go to Texas tomorrow. And um, just get there and uh so i'm on the plane and i remember thinking i'm gonna show up and they're gonna realize they called the wrong guy they wanted <laughs> actually somebody else they wanted barnett but Barrett is, and um it was just all kind of surreal i get there first game was in texas at the old is the first year of that stadium and now they're building a new one shows you uh how long i've been around but i remember walking on the field that day and just saying this is unbelievable this is just surreal um and we get through that game, and, and he said, stay the rest of the series. And then he said, okay, now you're going with the crew to New York. Um, and I went with him, and I worked my first plate job, Memorial Day in 1994, uh, Yankee Stadium, 
Uh, and I remember working that game, and it was just really a cool experience uh, to get through that. I ended up staying up the whole season until the strike hit. Um, that's when the players went on strike yeah. uh, in the big leagues, and I went back to AAA and finished the season out. But um, that it was really, yeah, it was amazing. It, it was very much unexpected. Um, it was only my sixth year in professional baseball, so it was kind of a freak thing. Um, but, you know, God just had his hand in all that. And um, that was in the American League I was hired. Uh, and then in 2000, we came together. We're no longer American League and National League staffs. We are just major league, major league umpires. So, obviously, you know, at, at the end of a game, it's easy to look at the box score and be like, okay, this guy had a good game, man. That pitcher's line was really good. As an umpire, what is a win for you? Like, what, 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 how do you guys reflect and say, hey, man, we, we did really well tonight? Uh, if you get a, it used to be if you got a game under two hours. Now it's getting a game under three hours. Uh, <laughs> so that's you know really uh, that's that's kind of our goal as we go out on the field. It's hey, we hope we have a quick game. Uh, we hope there's no controversy, and we just hope that uh, you know it's a well played game in a timely manner. Uh, but you know, some people say there's an old saying that a guy's a really good umpire if you don't know his name. Yeah. Um, but there, there's truth to that. But there's also a really good umpire won't shy away from making a controversial call when it's the right thing to do. Mm. The other day in, in Game 6 of the World Series, Sam Holbrook made a great call. Now the media will tell you it was a terrible call. Nobody's backing them up except Harold Reynolds, um, who, who's the only one that explained the play and got it right. And um, by the way, with Harold, I saw him the other day when I was at negotiations for – our new contract, I said, Harold, I appreciate you uh, explaining it the way you did. You, you explained it as well as an umpire could. And, and Harold's a follower of Christ also. So he said, you know, I'm just, he said, I'm getting so ridiculed for doing this. I said, well, you know, brother, it's like we stand up what God's word says and uh, the world will ridicule us for that. And it's getting worse, I believe. I said, yeah, so yeah. he said, amen. That's a good comparison. But anyway, to get back to the point is, with the with umpires, seventy six of us, all seventy six of us would have made that call on the runners lane interference. Okay, you might not like the rule, you might not like the rule, but it was the right call, you know. And it's it's like scripture. Um, there are things in there that that uh, that God says um, that, like it or not, this is uh, how we are to live our lives, and um, so. You know, there's, there, you're taking that hard stand, and I, I compare that and make that comparison all the time. Uh, but a good game for us, you know, we hope nothing like that happens. Um, and again, it's he made that call. People don't understand it. Uh, they don't get it. Players don't get it. Uh, announcers don't get it. But umpires get it. Yeah. And um, so um, that saying about an umpire, a good umpire, you don't know his name. Well, people know Sam Holbrook's name, but it's because he had the courage to stand up and make the right call, even knowing that he was going to take some heat for it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, walk, here's, here's to answer your question. I take the long route. I'm sorry. No, but, I love it. Uh, I love it. A, a good game. Again, when you walk off the field, you've got this feeling. Sometimes I've walked off and said, you know what? Uh, I wasn't very good today, but, but I gave it my best effort. And, um, 
you know, other times you walk off the field and you said, you know, I really did a great job. And a lot of that has to do with are the pitchers throwing the ball well, are the catchers receiving it well, and that helps you a lot. Um, but the other thing is when, you, when I walk off the field as a crew chief and the other three guys, um, you know, have respect for the job you did, and then if God is pleased with what you did, that's a good game. Um, you know, you're not always going to go out there and go unnoticed and, and have quick games. So, um, you know, doing the right thing. And then the other thing is, at times we mess up, and um, you know we've got to we've got to face that. You look yourself in the mirror and say, I messed that situation up. I do it as a crew chief all the time. Or I'll ask my crew, I'll humble myself to the younger guys and say, um, what could I have done different there? And look for their input. And being humble enough to, to uh, you know, ask them instead of instead of acting like I have all the answers uh, because I don't. And so there's just a lot of things that go on in the locker room, discussions that the average fan doesn't see. And uh, the biggest thing I want to get across to people that are baseball fans that maybe don't like umpires is how much we care about the job. Mm. If if we miss a play, uh, especially one that can't get corrected by replay. Uh, you might be mad. Um, the player might be mad, but I tell you, nobody feels worse than the umpire yeah. that missed the play. Even when we miss a play and we get open and it gets overturned by replay, we're glad that it got right and that you know we're, we didn't have an effect on the outcome of the game. We're still upset that we missed the call mm. because we failed it at our job. And so, guys really, really care. Each and every major league umpire really cares about their performance and wanting to be the best that they can. And I think we all should be thankful that we don't have 45,000 people attending our job every day, yelling at every time we make a mistake at work. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we used, to, we, you know, yeah, we used to joke in the minor league when uh, – and it was worse in the minor league with the fans because, you know, it was nickel beer night and they're sitting right behind you. And, or sometimes there's only 100 people at the game instead of 40,000. You can really hear the hecklers there. And uh, I had a partner yell back at a guy one night. He said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to come to McDonald's tomorrow and scream at you while you try to make fries. <laughs> we'll see how it's And uh, so it's um, – in the big leagues, we don't hear it as much. You just hear kind of this collective boo rather than the individual heckles. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, sometimes, too, it's like you'll make a call. You, you know you're right. Um, the crowd's – mad because they showed the replay and maybe they they skewed it to make it look like uh it should have gone in favor of the whole home team and and i just kind of uh laugh and i say you know this is a little taste maybe of what jesus felt on the cross mm. he said lord forgive them for they know not what they do yes that's almost like a lord forgive these fans because they don't know the rule yes yes <laughs> so. have there ever been any hecklers that you like you know, it wasn't maybe it was in a minor league where where you could kind of hear more hear the individual heckler, and you almost they were really good, and you just kind of gave yourself a chuckle because they were just kind of funny or something that they said. Yeah, you know, for the most part, um, you know, they, it's almost like they, they, you always hear the same thing in every part. Yeah, uh, and it just gets old, and you just want to turn around and say, you, you know, you're not funny, right? Uh, right. Once in a while someone will say something uh, that'll make me chuckle even, or if they yell at the, the player at a player, uh, opposing player, it'll make me chuckle sometimes what they say. Yeah. Um, but you know, um, I also laugh 
even at the big league level when when players get angry at a particular heckler and I, I want to tell them, you know, you got one guy mad at you, I got forty thousand <laughs> mad at him. Don't don't come look at me for any. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to uh, take any sympathy for this guy being mad at you. Right. So, uh, right. Oh, that's so funny. So, but getting a little serious, I mean, we talk about that playing game six. What effect does that have on the umpire where that was, you know, you're right. Every game, I'm sure there's calls that every umpire looks back on is like, ah, man, that was borderline. That was borderline. But one that is so publicized by the media what effect does it have on you as the umpire, uh, just knowing that you're kind of in the middle of it? You know you made the right call, but like you said, aside from Harold Reynolds and your fellow umpires, it's just negativity. Can you tune that out, or do you hear it? Yeah, you know, by the time you get to the big leagues, uh, you definitely hear it, but you, you can tune it. You want to go to the rooftop, or you want to go on, on a major news network and just say, Here's here's the reason I called it. Yeah, uh, but you don't. And and for us, we know what we signed up for this this job. We're, we're not complaining. Uh, you know, we worked hard to get here, and and we knew this is all part of it. This is this is not a surprise to Sam Holbrook. Here's the problem. Here's where it hurts when your children mm. uh, go to you know if, if uh, Sam's kids are in college, so it's probably less of an effect, but. I know uh, when my kids were in junior high, uh, you know, I hate for them to go to school and say, hey, you're, you know, your dad stinks and he missed that play last night. They didn't sign up for this. No. Uh, they shouldn't be subjected to that. Uh, and Don Denkinger, I alluded to that earlier. It was the Kansas City-St. Louis uh, World Series where he, he missed a call and no replay, of course, back then. And um, St. Louis went on to uh, lose the World Series in seven games and um you know he got death threats his children got death threats oh, his wow. wife uh, yeah with um uh, jim joyce who had to play in the in the perfect game that uh, that he missed and and you know it was it was it ended up being a great sports story because armando galarraga bought off the lineup cards the next day and and a very emotional thing there was forgiveness and grace mm. there but his kids were getting death threats on social media um you know people just take this uh, game way too seriously. Amen. Um, Amen. Again, you try to shield your family from that, uh, but with and, and and you could twenty years ago, but now there's no shielding. There there's nowhere to hide uh, with with um, with the internet and social media. So that's that's the part that hurts. That's the part that um, you know we hope we don't end up on on ESPN because we don't want the repercussions of the children getting involved. And um, you know I really wish fans would leave them out of it get as mad as you want at me uh get mad at sam holbrook um you know i can't convince you he got it right uh you can you can be angry with him sam's got a broad shoulders he can take that but leave his children out of it leave yeah. his wife out of it now i ask this next question not to call anybody out but i think it's important for our listeners athletes and coaches to just hear this it, is it difficult for you as umpires to you know there are Christian baseball players. Is it difficult for you as a Christian umpire to see some Christian or baseball players that identify themselves as Christians, but don't behave as Christians? Is, is that difficult for, 
for you, I mean, I just want them to see that, like, you know, we're held to a higher standard as Christians and that our actions, people are always watching, you know? And so just kind of what is that like? I'm not asking for any specific stories, but. That's a great question. And I'm glad you asked that because that is, uh, you know, I've always been an encourager. I like to encourage, I like to encourage Christian players. If I see they've done an interview or I've read something, heard a podcast, seen a TV interview and I, Hey, great job. Way to represent Jesus. What hurts is when you see the guys doing that, that then on the field, whether through their language, their actions, um, I hate it when a Christian guy uh, is not a very good teammate. Um, I hate it when a guy that proclaims Christ in, in, in one sentence then um, you know, has a profane language because he popped up. Or I hate it when a guy who claims to be a Christian abuses one of my umpires. Uh, those things are devastating toward toward the cause of Christ. They we are we are in such a uh, under a microscope. I try to encourage the guys on the field that you have got to back up your words with action, and not that you're perfect. You're going to mess up, but when you do, come out with an apology. Uh, come out with, hey, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I'll, I'll give you this quick story because um, when I first came to the big leagues. Um, you have to understand in baseball that it's like the military profane language is very, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a bad word is a, a noun, an adjective, a pronoun. <laughs> it's prevalent all over the baseball field. Um, and I fell right into that early on into my pro career throughout the minor leagues and into the big leagues. Chris Singleton, who's with, uh, he does a lot of games on ESPN radio now, solid brother. There was a particular situation where um, coach made me mad. I had cussed him out. Uh, my crew was saying, Hey, great job. Way to go. Way to, you know, the world was saying great job on that. And Chris just kind of came up to me on his way out the center field or uh, out the center field. And he said, Hey brother, um, I know you, you're a follower of Jesus. And I just want to tell you that your people are watching and listening to what you say. And I said, you know what you need to do? You need to go out the center field and mind, mind your own business. And I said, how dare he say that to me? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I go through. Uh, he can't judge me. Who does he think he is? And I laid in bed that night fuming, and, and I felt like God saying to my heart, I sent him to tell you that. Wow. And, and so the next day I went to him, and I, and, and, and I found him outside the locker room. And it's always awkward when we approach players off the field, and uh, because we we definitely try not to mix uh, and giving any sense of uh, impartiality. But I said, hey, brother, can I talk to you? And he said, I don't know if I want to talk to you. And I said, no, no, I want to apologize. And I want to thank you uh, because uh, the Holy Spirit led you to tell me something. And I apologize for my reaction, but thank you for doing that. And I said, and I'm going to try to do better. You know, I thought there's no way I could stop talking like that. But I prayed and I asked God to help me in the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, I have not said a cuss word on the field since then. Wow. Um, and uh, it's but so I say that because I'm constantly reminding myself when I see a player, there's a, uh, I saw a player do an interview on a major Christian uh, network and uh, just was talking about, you know, 
being a follower of Jesus, being a player. The next day I saw him do something very ungodly. And in my, I wanted, I was so angry out of, out of righteous indignation. I wanted to walk up to him and tell him and get in his face and call him out. And God reminded me, you know what? Uh, that used to be you. And, um, so I said, okay, how do I handle this? I handled it the way Chris Singleton handled it with me. I pulled him aside. I said, Hey brother, I saw your interview last night. Great job on that way, way to uh, proclaim the name of Jesus. I just want to remind you that out here we are representatives of Jesus. And, you know, I try to do it out of love. Yeah. And I can do that because I remember what it was like. And, uh, you know, he had kind of a, you know, a mixed reaction, but that's okay. He had a better reaction than I did <laughs> and would let God, let God do the rest. But, uh, I think a lot of Christian players think when it comes to uh, officials, referees, umpires, uh, that they, they they get a free pass on that. They that God understands when you uh, don't act very godly toward one of them, and yeah. that's not true. Uh, yeah. I see it in the NBA a lot, and, and it drives me crazy. Uh, solid Christian brothers um, out on the court just abusing referees and using unsavory language, and it's devastating. Um and uh, I'll finish with this story uh, on this question because it's, I was uh, in a church and they were doing great things trying to reach out to men. Uh, they started a basketball league and um, they divided up teams and they made a schedule and you know, we were helping them organize it. They got a scoreboard and, some, and uh, they bought a referee in uh, and they paid him. And these men of God, pastors, Loved, uh, definitely uh, leaders, Christians, abused this referee. Mm. And when the game was over, uh, he was leaving, and I and I grabbed him, and I said, hey, hey, uh, great job, thank you. And I said, um, our service is here Sunday morning. We've got two services. He said, listen, I might go to church Sunday, but I ain't coming to this church. Wow. And, uh, and so the only guy at the, in this basketball program that was not a part of the church uh, it just definitely turned him off. So, um, again, that used to be me. That was probably, I, I would have been one of the guys out on the court if I wasn't an official acting like that. But I just, uh, I want guys that follow Jesus to really think about, um, even during times of competition or even sitting in the stands watching the game, um, remember who you represent at all times. That's incredible. And praise God for Chris Singleton having the boldness and the courage to come up and speak that to you. You know, and I think that as valuable as what you just said was, and it was so incredibly valuable, and I hope that our athletes, I hope that our coaches, I hope that anyone who listens to this takes what you said to heart. I also hope that they see what Chris Singleton did and, as uh, you know, eventually what you did as well is – you know, being able to, in love, speak to our brothers and sisters like that, we're not responsible for how they respond. We're just responsible for the way that we communicate things. We can't control how it's received. And so, man, that is boldness and courage right there. Yeah, absolutely. And he's so humble, Chris. When I see him, I remind him of that. And he said, you know, he says, uh, yeah, I don't really remember that. He said, I always remember you um, really behaving well. And I'm like, well, thank God God took that from your memory because uh, 
it's seared in mind. But uh, uh, you're right, and you know, for for me, it was a, it's a good lesson too because, like I said, I love to encourage. I love to encourage the guys. I yeah. love to um, you know tell them they're doing great, and that's fun. Uh, it's not as much fun when you uh, <laughs> you have to call a guy on the carpet. Yeah, it's not something I enjoy. Uh, but again, the fact that it was done to me. And, and and I knew the effect that it eventually had, um, you know, I know the importance of it. And, you know, sometimes we just want to take the easy way out too. We're like, I'm not going to call that brother out because yep. that's going to be awkward. He's not going to like me. And, yep. well, you're being disobedient. Yep. Mm. You're being disobedient. And, um, uh, again, um, God doesn't, uh, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do anything. Um, he can, he'll get it all done by himself. Uh, or he'll raise somebody else up to do it. And, but there's something about it when, you, when you're when you allowed to be a part of God's plan and he uses you. It is just so fulfilling. And um, that's, uh, that's why uh, I enjoy the interaction that I have out on the field with, uh, with the players. And, the, you know, there's catchers we can have conversations with, sometimes first and third baseman or second baseman, not so much with pitchers, outfielders once in a while as they run by, but uh, just being, it's amazing <laughs> the witness you can have to non-Christian guys even as they, uh, when they respect the job you do. And again, also the, uh, the clubhouse people, the, the, uh, the security people that we come in contact with, hotel people um, that we will develop relationships year after year going to, the, we're creatures of habit. We go to the same restaurants. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of times in the minor league, the only thing open after a game, uh, you're trying to get some food is a bar. And, um, you know, sometimes some of the, the best ministry time I've had is in a bar. Yeah. As you're, you're talking, you're talking to bartenders, you're talking to waitresses, you're talking, you know, developing relationships and you come back, Hey, how's your kid doing? Um, you know, um, how's your, uh, last time you were sharing your son, your son was struggling in school. How's he doing now? You know, those wow. types of things. Hey, can I, can I pray for him? Um, you know, can we pray? Uh, it, there's a, a bar that uh, all the umpires hang out at in a particular city, and the, the owner is a wonderful person. We've uh, God's freed a lot of people from addictions. He's freed a lot of them from, uh, you know, uh, all types of things, restored marriages uh, in our community. And, and I remember walking into the bar one day and said to the bar owner, I said, hey, how you doing? He said, I love what you're doing. In, in your ministry with with your guys, he said, but you're killing my business. <laughs> <laughs> guys, are, guys are coming in here drinking water and iced tea. But said, I'm not making any money off that. <laughs> That's awesome. Praise God. Praise God is right. And so if it's okay with you, I do have a few more questions if you've got some time. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's you've reached the pinnacle of – being a major league ump of being an umpire. And so I have a two part question for you. My first part is, was there a period in your life where you became a major league umpire and now you, that was your identity. It wasn't, uh, it it was, I'm, I'm a major league umpire. It's, you know, and it's not, I'm a man of God. Um, and not that you lost that, but that's kind of, you know, just what maybe what you led with. And then my second part is, we all leave legacies behind. As an umpire, what is the legacy that you want to leave behind? Mm, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, as far as uh, 
it's, it's real easy. And I, I fight that all the time. Uh, you know, when you, when you work a world series or, you know, you get a high profile events like that and you can start sitting there saying, you know what, this, this, this is who I am. I'm, I'm the crew chief of the world series. And, uh, you know, that's my identity. And I see that also with guys that struggle as they get to the end of their careers or they retire. It's like, what was my, I was a major league umpire. Now I'm not, my identity's gone. Um, but also it, that permeates into the family. The wife's identity is the wife of a major league umpire. The children's identity is I'm a child of a major league umpire. And now this guy's not a major league umpire anymore. The family's lost his identity. Um, so it's so important to remember our true identity is as children of God and not just umpires because one day I'm not going to be an umpire anymore. Um, and I don't want people to look at me now and go, oh, there's Ted, the umpire. I want him to say, hey, there's Ted, the follower of Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's so important. And it, it's, it's something I have to fight all the time. I remember uh, 2014, I worked the World Series, went to Game 7. It was uh, the uh, Royals and the Giants. It was a great World Series. And I, I came home. And uh, I told my wife, I said, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've reached the top of the profession. She said, that's great. She said, uh, while we were gone, the dogs uh, made a big mess in the backyard. So you oh, need to no. get back there and pick up. <laughs> so as I'm back there picking it up, I'm like, thank you, God, for humbling me as I thought I was more than I was a minute ago. Because wow, uh, nothing's more humbling than getting down and, and picking up your dog's <laughs> weight all over the yard. So. Uh, but I, I remember that all the time because, uh, you know, the world's not going to care. Uh, I was talking about this at the funeral the other day with Eric Cooper, who I worked that world series with, um, you know, that's not going to add up to anything, you know, 50 years from now, no one probably now, no, only an umpire would remember who worked that world series. Uh, we get world series rings and all-star game rings, which are really cool to have but they've got no eternal value. So the legacy that we leave uh, is important. And that's why I think it's so important for us to be pouring into young guys, because when we're gone, they're going to carry on and it'll be the next generation. You know, I'm pouring into my kids and my grandkids. And hopefully when I'm gone, uh, they'll remember who I was. You know, we're affecting generations here. Amen. Uh, and, and, and when we, when we, able to bring prayer into the locker room and out on the field, uh, you know, years from now, who knows where God's going to take that. And um, that's the important thing. That leads, it's, it's people that have the eternal value. It's our bringing people into a relationship with Jesus. Um, that's what has eternal value. And uh, I, I don't care if uh, after I die at my funeral, if they say, I don't want them to say Ted was a great umpire um, because that won't mean a hill of beans. Yeah. But if they say, here's a guy that loved Jesus and, and he tried to introduce him to others, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's what I want to hear. That's, I want people to say uh, he was a follower of Christ, not, not a good umpire. So um, that identity is a big thing, though, that you talk about with us. And I see with ball players. We work closely with Baseball Chapel. Okay. Uh, it's a wonderful organization. Yeah, they and, and the cool thing about the chaplains at the major league level, uh, they are trying to disciple 
uh, the players. They, they do a good job of, of, of assisting us too, but that's their focus and it should be. Um, but they deal all the time with players that get out of the game within a few years. Uh, a lot of them are broke, which blows us away with the millions of dollars contract. Even, base, even the minimum wage in baseball is huge money, and yet they're broke. Um, a lot of them get divorced when they get out of the game because they don't know how to handle being home all the time with their spouse. Uh, a lot of them are now addicted, alcohol, drugs. Um, so obviously when, when the world makes you something and then it's taken away, people struggle. Uh, and so uh, talking about the legacy thing, I just want to emphasize to anybody that's listening how important it is if you're a follower of Jesus Number one, to be discipled. Mm. Um, find somebody. Uh, hopefully it's an older person. Uh, if you're a man, an older man. If you're a woman, an older woman. Someone that's lived life and following Jesus for quite a while, and they're able to pour into you. Now, at the same token, you can't stop there. You have to find someone to pour into, um, whether it's a younger person. Even if you're a high school baseball player, if you're a senior, find a freshman. If you're a freshman, find a junior high kid. You, and you think, oh, I've only been following Jesus for a little while. I don't have, I can't disciple anyone. Yes, you can. The Holy mm-hmm. Spirit will do it. Take what you learn from the person discipling you, and pass it on to the person, the other person. Um, you know, one of the great trips that my wife and I were able to take were over to Israel, and uh, you know, there's the Dead Sea, and it's dead because water comes into it but doesn't go out. It becomes stagnant. So we can become stagnant too if we're just taking things in and not pouring them out. Uh, so we need to be doing that. We need to be living streams of water. So in my long-winded way of saying that, it's important to find someone to disciple you and find someone to disciple. That's awesome. That's that's my sermon. I love hey, I could I could I could keep listening and and I I hope to. I hope some of these other questions insight responses like that, but you talked about feeding into the younger generation and your son Andrew has chosen the calling of becoming a, or uh, at least beginning the journey to become a major league umpire. Uh, what what has that been like? Yeah, that, you know that's been really cool. Uh, Andrew uh, and a couple of his friends. We teach a lot of clinics here, umpiring clinics here in the Phoenix area, and I would take them along as they were high school baseball players. Uh, my son was a very good high school baseball player. Uh, he caught and he pitched, so we would use him during these clinics to be the catcher, be the pitcher, um, make the plays. You know, we, we try to set up situations with ground balls, double plays, and uh, umpires aren't very good at, at making very good simulations of that, but these <laughs> high school kids would. Uh, so him and another uh, friend of his who they played against each other, but they were good friends, um, they would jump in and take reps and they were learning and uh, they started doing little league games together. And they came to me and said, we're going to umpire school. And uh, I told my son, you're, you're not going uh, until you get a college degree or you go in the military, uh, but you are not going out of high school. And um, so he went in the military, he did four years in the air force. He got out and he said, um, I still want to go to umpire school. I said, okay, now you can go with my blessing. And um, he did. I'm very proud of him. He continued. He, he got his college degree since then. Um, luckily, uh, the military was kind enough to pay for that, and I didn't have to. 
praise God. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm proud of him for that. And, and as he progresses along uh, in umpiring, last year it was really cool. We, we uh, worked a major league spring training game together. Wow. Uh, we walked on the field together. Yeah, my, uh, you know, of course, my wife was there. My parents were there. His kids were there. We had four generations. Oh, man. And it, it, it was a really cool thing for my parents uh, to be there for that. Uh, and it was fun working with him. But, you know, the, as, as good as he's doing in umpiring and his military time helped him with that, the thing I'm most proud of is he's becoming a leader in our ministry. Uh, he, we use uh, Multiply as our uh, small group. Um, and I, I took him and, and uh, another guy through that. And then those two guys then in turn – they took a group of guys through that. And last year, my son took three guys through this discipleship program. And, um, he, uh, he's, he's one of the, he's one of the leaders in the ministry at the minor league level. That's awesome. And, uh, and God's grooming him. So I'm more proud of him, uh, for that than, than I am for his umpiring. Now I would like him to get to the major leagues because like every dad, I want him to be uh, you know, successful and secure and, and, uh, off my payroll. <laughs> and, um, so, it, and it, it'll be, and it'll be cool for me uh, when I'm retired to, to go to games and watch him. But, uh, I hope he continues throughout, uh, his career in, um, being a part of this ministry and, and doing God's work. And we have several young umpires that are, uh, you know, we're going to pass the baton to when the time comes, and I know they're going to do great things through the ministry. So um, my younger son, uh, he, again, expressed interest going to umpire school. And then he went in the Army for three years. I'm proud of him wow. for serving his country. Yeah. And when he got out, he said, uh, Dad, I'm not going to go to umpire school. And I said, thank God. So, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I could handle two in the game. But, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the other thing I'm proud of is uh, is, uh, is Andrew, uh, is my son, and his partners, uh, you know, they tell me at the end of the year, they said, Hey, I love working with his son. He's a great partner. Mm. And that's the ultimate compliment that an umpire can get is that, uh, when, when his partners, uh, um, love working with him. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, quick question. Did growing up, did you have a favorite team? Obviously not. Now you can't be a fan, but growing up, did you have a favorite team? Yeah, you know, uh, growing up in Buffalo, we really didn't uh, we didn't have a big league team. Toronto was the closest. We never I never went to a big league game. Um, when I moved to California, and when I was in college, uh, the Giants were doing well. The the A's it was the Bash Brothers. Sure. Uh, so I I really liked watching. Um, again, showing my age here, but uh, I played a lot of Stratomatic baseball. My my dad was in a league with older guys. When I was fourteen, he he let me. Uh, be in the league with them, which was really cool because I got to hang out with the with the guys and, yeah. and play baseball. But um, you know, and it's kind of like it was a precursor of fantasy. So you had individual players and you could trade them, and but you followed their stats. And so I became a fan of not so much a team but players. Okay. So I had my favorite player, and and I liked watching my players. Got caught up a little bit in the fever of the of the A's with with the Bash Brothers and Billy Ball with Billy Martin managing, and I would take the Bart train up to games and. My brother and I would sit in the bleachers, and back when uh, seats were affordable. Uh, so, yeah, I would say I was more a fan of, of, of the players and and a team in particular. And you know, uh, out of umpire school, I got assigned to work minor league spring training with the Oakland A's. 
And so my first professional game, I was working the plate, and I saw Tony LaRusso, and I was a little starstruck. Wow. And I was like, oh, wow, Tony, he's the manager of the A's. Maybe I can get his autograph. <laughs> he was sitting up, sitting up in the crow's nest about the second inning. He started yelling at me uh, for the pitches I was calling, and I was no longer a fan of his. And uh, now it's – but uh, we've become good friends since Tony's retired, and he's he's done some work with us in the major league office. And he's a wonderful guy. But I I tell him that story. I said you took the fan right out of me, and uh, he said he said, well, I'm just glad you didn't come up after me. So that's so funny. That's so funny. So I do just have a couple more questions. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. You've you've had the privilege of coaching or coaching of umping in some incredible moments in the history of baseball. And is there one or two that kind of stand out that you look back on and, or, you know, maybe even when you're retired, you'll look back on and be like, that was really cool to be a part of. Yeah. I think um, the ones that stand out in 1999, I worked uh, David Cohn through a perfect game. And uh, then in 2012, Matt Kane through a perfect game. I was behind the plate for both of those. And I was at third base when Philip Humber threw a, a perfect game up in Seattle. And so to think about, uh, you know, there's only been about 25 perfect games in the history of Major League Baseball, the 140, the 150 years it's been played, uh, to, to even be close to, even to be a fan at one of those games is pretty amazing. But to be a part of three and then be behind the play for two of them, which I'm the only Major League umpire to have that honor, uh, that, that those stick out. I've been a part of um, – two game seven, four World Series, two of them went to game seven, the 2011 with uh, St. Louis and the Texas Rangers, which was an amazing World Series. That, that was fun to be a part of. Um, you know, the uh, World Series and perfect games are definitely, but there's other things. Like I worked the first game in, in San Francisco's new ballpark. Um, and they, and then working an all-star game there. Um Worked, working the plate in DC for the All Star Game. Those, those, those are things I think when when my career is over, I'll uh, look back and reflect on. Um, you know, being a part of working games with uh, when I first came up, it was Don Mattingly and Dave Winfield and, and Cal Ripken and uh, all these players that are in the Hall of Fame now. Uh, that'll be cool to look back and reflect on. You know, when you're in the middle of it, you don't appreciate what you're going through, and it isn't until I think you get some distance from it that you can start to appreciate it. What was happening with uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa in 1998 with the home run race uh, was pretty special. Um, you know, watching Barry Bonds uh, hit home runs at, at an unbelievable pace a few years ago to be a part of some of those games was, but again, you know, it, it, I don't think that's going to truly sink in until I retire. So you have been a part of two perfect games, and you have also been a part of the longest game in World Series history. Which one is more mentally taxing? Being behind the plate for a, a perfect game as it's happening or having the mental stamina to be behind the game for a World Series game that lasts over seven hours? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good question. Uh that one didn't even jump out at me. Um, but, you know, the perfect game is so it, it's mentally taxing, but I think the, the seven and a half hour world series 
plate job is, was equally as taxing. It was just a heck of a lot longer. Uh, <laughs> and I, I seem to have the bad luck. In my first World Series in 2007, I had the Rockies and Red Sox, and I had Game Three, the first first game played in in World Series history with the Rockies, and uh, that game went four hours and 19 minutes. So I actually have the record for the longest nine inning oh. World Series game. <laughs> Then to turn around and get the record for the longest World Series game, period. Um, someone came up with a stat that I, I think it was like the 1939 or, or one World Series. Uh, the whole series didn't take as long as that one game. So uh, that that was pretty amazing. You know, and, and it's funny because that was a blessing. The next day they asked me to do an interview, and I really was reluctant to because I, while the series was going on, I didn't want to detract from the team's. But they asked how I got through it, and I said, a lot of prayer. And I just told the truth. I mm. said, a lot of prayer. And, then, and the guy said, what kind of, what verses in particular? And, you know, it's I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And all these, I, when, when I feel challenged on the field, that is what I do. I try to recite scripture. I'm not the greatest at memorizing verses, but and just talking to Jesus and asking him to give me strength and the ability and um so I shared that, and the New York Times printed that, and I was wow, I was blown away. If you go back and look at that article, he's talking about you know, I'm mentioning Jesus, and it's uh, that was really humbling with the, the fact that the, the secular media would would pick up on that and yeah, and print that. So you know, I, I was just uh, I said, man, that made it all worth it going through seven and a half hours. Uh, but it, you know, God gave me an unbelievable. Uh, stamina in that game and and um you know when it was over it also helps knowing that that was the last play job i was gonna have to work that season <laughs> i knew i'd be done until spring training that is a big thing because you know you have a 19 inning game in june or july that will really uh wear you down mm. the residual effects but when you know you can smell the barn and you're almost done that really helps you get through it <laughs> that that's I, I can't imagine i cannot imagine so I would I I you know we we talk about all those memories and man that it's just incredible to have been a part of it but I have a serious question for you and I I hope that our coaches really listen to your response on this because you know especially at the minor league level I mean like you said umpires can be gone from March through September October you know and and yes that takes its toll on them but Talk to me about the ministry to to umps umpires' wives, you know, because they're with the kids or just alone for those five or six months, and you know the, their identity is oh that's you know Ted Bar- you know major league umpire Ted Barrett's wife, like you know they're trying to find their identity, but who ministers to their heart? Yeah, you're right. That they've got the tough job. I always tell my wife if the roles were reversed. Uh, I wouldn't do it. Uh, and my wife was basically a single parent throughout the minor leagues um, and, and much of the big leagues. And uh, she became quite proficient at, uh, you know, she could fix the garbage disposal. She could, you know, a lot of wives call and you're 3,000 miles away and the toilet's broke. But there's not a whole lot you can do. So my wife, would she gets in there and, and uh, gets it done or calls someone that can. So um, they've started a wives' ministry. And, oh, uh, praise God. Yeah, and they, so they've got a little bit of a community at the big league level, and, then, and some of the, the big league women, like my wife, take time to 
pour into the uh, the minor league women, um, and and so uh, community is important. But the biggest thing uh, that we found the ladies that do the best is when they get plugged into a local church. Yeah, uh, because of the local the local church with community, um, you've got people that can that, that help out. And um, with kids, uh, you've got people that, uh, you know, uh, understand. Um, you got people that can support. And, um, you know, also in, in the winter, it's tough for a minor league guy because when you come home, you're not getting paid during the season. So you're trying to do any, anything for a buck. Uh, so not only are you gone all season, um, you're, you're working jobs when you're home. So uh, it becomes the quantity of time. I mean, you know, the quality over the quantity, you have to make the, the most of when you're together. Um, but yeah, the wives are, they're the troopers. Um, so to answer your question, who's ministering them, hopefully they're plugged into a local church. Yeah. Uh, and then also they get into community, uh, with the other wives around. Um, but yeah, that is, that's a tough job. And, and we also see, uh, coaches, wives, sometimes our wives, if they come to ball games, they, they might end up striking up relationships Again, there's that fine line with uh, fraternizing, but also hopefully doing some some encouraging as well. Sure, sure. Okay, well, we have covered a lot of incredible content, and I am sure our listeners have been blessed and filled by how God has worked through this interview. But, Ted, now we're about to head into the hardest-hitting segment of this podcast – we are going to head into Eli wants to know where my eight-year-old son is going to hit, ask you a hard-hitting question that all of America wants to know. Are you ready? Oh, boy. I'm as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Ted. Hi, Eli. How are you? Good. Have you ever Good. ejected someone? Oh, yes, I have. Um, I have quite a few ejections. Probably the most memorable to fans would be uh, Bobby Cox. I ejected him in August of 2007, which made which uh, was a record breaker. He broke John McGraw's record for the most ejections by a major league manager. Wow! Probably my most memorable. Um, sometimes they're really mad, but you know what, Eli? Sometimes when we eject them, it's kind of for show. Uh, I have had managers come out and ask me to eject them. Um, I had um, Jim Tracy once uh, was managing the Dodgers, and I had uh, two calls at home plate where the catcher was upset, thought I missed him. Mm-hmm. Mr. Tracy came out and said, hey, Ted, I could see from my angle you got those plays right, but I've got to get ejected here to stick up for my team. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm going to throw my hat. I'd like you to eject me. And so he did. He then, when he walked off the field, he tried to kick the chalk line and kick some chalk up. Uh, he stubbed his toe when he did it. He hobbled out the plate, the home plate the next day. He said, well, that's what I get for trying to do that to you. I broke my toe. So uh, sometimes, sometimes ejections are funny, too. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Awesome job, Ted. And Eli, awesome job, as always. So now we're going to head into our final segment 
called uh, – it's just three and out where we ask all of our guests the same three questions and it's just kind of a way for our listeners to get to know a lighter side of you. And so the first question is what is the last book that you read? The last book I read, I went through with my small group, a, a book called Unwanted by Jay Stringer, which is really cool about being a man. And, uh, and, and I'm a reader. Um, the other one was a book called Twisted Thinking by Jerry Price, who was a mentor of mine that passed away. And um, uh, both, if you're a reader, pick up both of them. Unwanted deals with a lot of uh, issues that we go through as men. And um, Mr. Stringer, who I've never met, did a great job of that. Also, um, there's a Pastor Jeff Orge, who is the president of Gateway Seminary out in California. He's a great friend of our ministry. He comes to our retreats and speaks. And um, he wrote a book called The Painful Side of Leadership, which I highly recommend to any person that wants to go into ministry. So those, those are you asked for one book, I gave you three. I like it. I like it. And when we get off, when we get off air, I'm going to ask you for what other authors you like. So um, that's awesome. Second question. You're on a car ride. What are you listening to? All right. Well, during the season, a lot of times I put it on 63 on the message. Um, we play uh, music before the games in the locker room. And uh, we listen to a lot of Motown, R&B. But now... Lately, what I've been listening to, playing over and over, is Zach Williams has come out with a new album called Rescue Story. Get you know, it used to be my age. I'd say go buy the album, go buy the CD, <laughs> go buy the cassette, buy the eight track. Now, do whatever you got to do to download it. The Zach Williams Band new album Rescue Story. You'll love it. I've uh, been playing that over and over again. Okay, okay, we will, we will. They make a movie about your life. Who plays you? <laughs> um, so from my boxing background, uh, this is not so much physical re- resemblance, but um, uh, Tex Cobb, you'll have to look him up on the internet for you younger guys. He was, uh, he was a uh, boxer, and he was like me. He wasn't very good, but he could take a punch, and he had a lot of heart. Uh, he became an actor later, and uh, I always said I want him to play me in the movie. Um, someone told me the other day that I look like Terry Bradshaw, a lady at the hotel <laughs> told me that. I don't know if that was a compliment or not. And then uh, other people said maybe uh, Ed Harris, but they're probably talking more about the hairline. So, um, uh, yeah, so again, you, you're asking me for an answer and i'm giving you threes so sorry about that no please don't apologize you're my kind of guy i love it i love it uh i did hear an interview with somebody one time kind of speaking about your not really about uh, somewhat about your boxing but just about your physically imposing figure you know for those that don't know uh ted you're you're six four is that correct yeah yeah Yeah. at least i used to be i'm shrinking a little bit (laughs) i'm right around but I, I, I wish – I was trying to think of who it was that I heard say this, but uh, it was during a baseball game. I was watching a video, and it was years ago. I found this on YouTube as I was just trying to uh, prepare for today, and and the the announcer was saying – he was a former Major League Baseball player, and he was saying you were the one umpire that he would not argue with because – you know, and this just kind of brings the whole – podcast full circle but you were the one umpire that he would not argue with because of 
the not the reputation you have, but how you carried yourself. He had so much respect for you that even if you had blatantly missed a call, uh, he just had so much respect for you that you you were the one umpire he refused to argue with and. Um, you know, he started off by saying how much respect he had and all those things. And then he added at the end and something along the lines of, and in addition, he's a boxer and imposing, you know. Um, but the, the, the core of it was just how much respect mm-hmm. he had. And I'm sure hearing that from players and coaches that have since retired, that's probably a very humbling and honoring thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when, when I hear that, it's, it's very humbling. And, you know, and, I just, again, I credit the Holy Spirit because um, hopefully they're seeing something there uh, that's, uh, you know, shining through. And, and when it is, that's, that's really cool. Uh, it's, it's also funny. I hear some announcers say, uh, oh, yeah, you know, Ted, I, I never argued with him. And I say, your memory's a little fuzzy because I remember you arguing with me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's but, awesome. Uh, you know, it's, re- it's revisionist history, right? The guy telling the story, he... <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Ted, we are so thankful for you coming on, for you sharing what God has done in your life, what God is currently doing. And while we're asking, let, let's not end yet. What is God currently doing in your life? Maybe it's ministry related. Maybe it's personal. Um, but what, what areas is God really working or showing up right now? Well, God, we right now we've got uh, actually getting done with the funerals. Uh, we're also in the process of negotiating our new contract, which is which is new to me for the first time, I'm, I'm on the negotiating team, and so really relying on God to, to lead us through that uh, and lead our group. And it's cool to watch uh, guys praying over the contract, which had never been done before. Wow! Um, the last few years we've been going to Cuba on mission trips, and uh, we've got another one coming up there. And, and we we're just talking this morning how excited we are. God's doing big things over in Cuba, and, and we've been able to connect with umpires over there and a, and a church over there. Uh, so we've got that trip coming up. We're excited. We've got a group of, of other, other umpires. I'm not a part of this trip, but they're going to the Dominican to teach umpiring and uh, do some evangelism work. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. of course, our retreats in December, we're super excited about that. We think it's going to be an all-time uh, high in attendance, and uh, we know the Holy Spirit's going to show up. And, and so it takes a tremendous amount of planning and work, and, and we're in the process of doing that. And my wife is leading the, uh, helping to lead the ladies too, as as, as you talked about. Um, and then I fit, uh, I feel like God eventually. I'm I'm waiting on His timing for me to retire, and go on and do more ministry things. I look forward to that day, uh, but I also um, am trying to be real sensitive as to what God has next. And um, so. Wow. Lots going on. Yeah. Uh, at times I feel overwhelmed, uh, and at times I feel God telling me to take a step back and take a breath. But um, you know, it's just it, it it's been fulfilling, and uh, we're going to keep pressing on until until uh, He tells us to move. So uh, I, I appreciate prayer. Uh, anybody that's listening, when you watch a game, when you see if you get mad at an umpire if you're playing. Uh, take a second to pray for them. And, you know, I do that with players at, at times. If, if I get mad at them with their reactions, and I'll take a second and pray for them. You know, it's real hard to be mad at somebody when you pray for them. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's, been a, that's been a cool thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I will put this plug in real quick. Uh, the way that we 
I got connected with Ted was through a ministry called Sports Officials Surrendered. You were a speaker at their conference this year. And can you just kind of talk a little bit about uh, what being a part of that was like? And, you know, there it's not just major league. Uh, it's not just umpires. It's officials across the the, in, the sports industry. And so what was that opportunity like of just being able to speak life and encouragement? You already said you're an encourager. So what, what was that like? What's it been like to be a part of sports officials surrendered? Yeah, it's been really cool watching them as they're starting out in their infancy, and um, they and, and watching as God molds their their vision and leads them and directs them. Unfortunately, I had the, the way my schedule was; I wasn't able to be there, but we were able. I was able to do some teaching over video. Uh, but this is this has been really cool to watch them spread out to other sports, uh, especially basketball, and, and take it to uh, you know the high school official, the the junior high official, and and um, you know, the football guys and 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 uh, even we're trying to get some hockey guys involved. This, this has been really neat to watch. It's kind of in its infancy stages, but they've got they've got great leaders, uh, visionaries, and I'm, I'm really excited to see where that ministry goes. And I'm just I'm honored to be a mm-hmm. part of it. To be honest with you. That's awesome. And Ted, thank you so much again for just sharing your heart. We are trusting and expecting God to use this podcast, God to use your testimony and your story and how he's worked in your life to provide hope for other people that are listening and just to for them to see, man, God did it in him. He can do it in me. And so we thank you so incredibly much. Well, thank you. And thanks for uh, the time. And uh, this really lifted me up and lifted my spirit. So I thank you for that. Thank you again, Ted Barrett. He absolutely knocked the interview out of the park. He did a great job of just sharing his journey with us, taking us behind the scenes, letting us know how he intermingles his faith with with being an umpire and just what life is like being an umpire. And so we thank you so much for your time, Ted. Um, We are trusting and believing that God is going to use his testimony to impact you guys, the listeners. Um, Guys, like I had said at the beginning, if you would be willing, if you like this podcast, share, rate, and review it. Send it to a friend. Send it to two friends who you think might... Uh, our baseball fans love Jesus and just might be impacted by hearing how God has worked in Ted's life. Um, again, I have no idea how the Apple podcast algorithm works as to what podcasts get in front of people's eyes when they log on, but I do know that shares and, and reviews help. And so, um, we believe that God uses testimonies to not just, not just for the people that share them, but for us listeners as well, because we can pull bits and pieces from Ted's life, from Ted's journey and from how God's worked in, in Ted's life and apply it to ours. And so that, that at the end of the day, that's our goal is that people will hear this podcast and Maybe they weren't a believer before, and they'll move one step closer to putting their faith in the Lord. Or if they are a believer, this will draw them 1% closer uh, in their relationship with God. And so thank you for joining us, and until next time.